In this episode, Andy Meltzer, Finance Director at Quantilope, shares his insights on fundraising in the midst of a pandemic, building a culture of transparency within finance, and why chess should be on every CFO's mind. Hey, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's finance leaders. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on uh, the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me, Ross. It's a pleasure. I'd love to start, actually, Andy, by one of the things I noticed when we were looking at your experience and your background is that like, from, from a distance, it looked as if you were both an active founder. You almost have two jobs at the moment with being a founder, active founder of the Varia Media, but also, of course, Associate Director of Finance and a member of the leadership board at Quantilope. So can you talk a little bit about how you juggle those, those responsibilities and what that looks like? Happy to give more background on that. So, so my main job, my, my day job is director of finance at Quantilope and leading the global finance team here. And I'm really enjoying this. However, as a side project, it started with some friends of mine. I, I also founded Varia Media. And as I said, this was really a, a side project. I worked with them like for two years uh, in the ideation phase and also in the very early stages. But actively, I'm not so actively involved anymore. I would be punching above my weight if I had two CFO roles next to each other. So that's actually more a, a support and, and cheering role now that I have at, at Barrier. Yeah, so the, the day job keeps you busy enough. Definitely. I can imagine. And so then the other part that, that stood out for me about your particular journey, and, I, and I've personally come across many people who have followed this path where they've become an investor, work for like some, some type of fund. In your case, it was uh, focused on, as I understand it, early stage VC fund. And then, of course, you, you went into to industry or to work for a, a scale up, in, in your case, Quantilope. So can you talk a little bit about that journey? Because I'm sure it's a, it's a big step because as an investor, you see so many different companies and, and it's in a really exciting sector to be in. But at the same time, making that leap from the, the advice investor of multiple companies to being solely committed to one company and in your case Quantilope is a big commitment so how did you approach that transition in your career? I must say the decision to join Quantilope was really one of the best I took in my professional life but taking a step back here so I, I was working at, at Sinovo early stage B2B SaaS fund based in, in Munich and actually, I was on the investment team and Quantilope was the first investment I was working on at Sinovo. So I actually got to know the founders very early on in their journey during the seed investment. Back then, I gave them operational support for one week, built, built with them their first financial model, first business plan, already helped out there. And then took the decision to still stay with the venture fund for now, because actually what you said is, is very true. So what I enjoyed most about being a venture capital on a, at a venture capital investor is getting to know all these founders, really having a broad view of the industry, always knowing which startup, getting to know all the uh, very cool founders. Very, you can learn so much only being an investor in startups and learning from the founders. That's great. On the other hand, I always, and that's also going back to my studies and also my previous jobs and internships that I had before is I always wanted to work operationally. What is kind of regrettable is that you see a lot of startups, but you actually don't have the feeling you do it yourself or you, you could do it yourself. So that's really something I want to get that operational experience. 
And then when in late 2018, the decision was taken that Cornelope would open their U.S. operations, they needed someone who would just support and I joined the company then and, and took the chance almost immediately. It was clear to me that, that I should go there. As I already knew about the opportunity, was totally convinced of our vision here and also already got, uh, knew the team very well. Yeah, so I took that opportunity and I really didn't regret it since then. I empathize with the the decision at the time because uh, I, I sometimes describe myself as a, a recovering consultant because uh, it was formerly in consultancy. And then after a number of years, again, it shares some of the traits you described in investing is it's really exciting. You, you move from client to client, industry to industry. There's always an interesting problem to solve. But I think that sometimes you feel like a commentator rather than a player because you're not committing to one project and building it over time. And so it sounds as if actually you've had some similar, even in your career investing, it sounds as if you had some similar realizations. Back at the investor I was working at, I mean, uh, their whole strategy and, and whole um, setup is very operational. So they're really supporting founders in the early phases. However, it still felt like I could do more, like I could be more engaged with this one, also completely bought into the vision of the company here and and the, the leadership style and also the whole culture that was built here. And I really wanted to be a part of that team. I'm thinking of the, the transition. So investment has had this exceptionally analytical side, but then there's also, which, which might be the science, but then there's this relationship aspect, which is a belief in the founder, their resilience, their determination, of course, their vision. And so, which is perhaps the more artistic side. So did you have, again, you're going into a finance role ultimately and in, in someone who's clearly very analytical. Were you led by more so in that decision by like the head or the heart? I would say it's definitely a combination of both. I really enjoy and, and, and of course, coming from the investor side, there are many things that I brought in as things that, that I could bring in here, like analytical skills. That's something that you just learn as an investor. Also, knowing about what investors want to see at a startup. And that, that's really helpful. And, and also just the network from having been an investor. So network to other companies, network to other CFOs, network to other investors. That has really helped a lot. And that's also something that some people underestimate, I think, is that being an investor is not only about being an analytic, but also it's about relationship building. It isn't the way you're building relationship like or a culture in your, in your company. However, you still need to build up your network, may it be with entrepreneurs, may it be with other investors, may it be with other experienced professionals that you can learn from also as an investor. That touches on another point that, that I'd love to get your perspective on, which is now that you're at Guantelope, of course, that you're leading the finance function. I'm sure a huge part of what you will have to do is engaging with current investors, potential investors, thinking about fundraising. So how did your experience in that investing world shape the way that you tackle that challenge today? I think what is key when engaging with investors is understanding what they are looking for and, and also what they need and how they look at things. Because often you're you're very focused on how you look at things. And, and that's very important as well. I mean, you should definitely have your priorities and, and stand for them. But it's also important to understand how you need to present that to people that are not engaged in your day-to-day -day business. And, and sometimes it's better to say less, but stronger focus on the most important things. And that's really something I think I learned as an investor as well. 
and could bring in here. And, and I, of course, the second part is, as I said before, being an early stage investor, one of the big parts of being an early stage investor is also building connections to later stage funds. So when I joined Quantilope, I already had connections to, to some or even many of the investors we've then been engaging with. So since I joined, we've raised another financing round, our Series B, mid last year. Of course, fundraising is a continuous process, so we're in constant contact also with, with investors of all sizes now. There's two pieces on there that, that I would love to explore with you. First of all is the fact that you're fundraising in the middle of last year. Obviously, lots of companies in the past year and an incredible amount have been fundraising. But it's a, it's a really challenging environment, not necessarily because the, 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 there aren't a lot of willing investors, but it's in the midst of so much uncertainty. And often when inherent in startups and scale-ups is a degree of, of course, uncertainty. And part of what is part of the pitch is to say, yes, we have this vision, but here are, are lots of things that can mitigate risk in a way. And that's hard to do in, in any type of normal normal environment in a startup or a scale-up. But in a pandemic, it's even more challenging. For any leader right now, the pandemic is just such a dominant factor because we've not yet fully recovered from it in many ways. How did COVID and the pandemic impact that fundraising round? So we started fundraising already before uh, the pandemic started. So we were in a very good position to fundraise because we really had a strong Q4, Q1 of 2020. And everything was going well. And also the talks were comparably very, I would say, easy. We were really positive that we could close our financing round by the end of Q1. And then actually, COVID started breaking out all over the world. And this really added a lot of uncertainty. And, and that actually led to some investors who were really invest, really interested in, in our startup, just saying, okay, we can do an investment now. Like this is just, we, it's just bad timing. Uh, we really like what you're doing, but we, we just took the decision. We, we hold off on investments in marketing at this point, because also we, we are tapping into marketing budgets and those are normally the first ones to be cut if something goes really bad. That was really a tough moment for us. However, we were fortunate enough to, to really be able to show our resiliency throughout Q2 and then managed to stay engaged with, with some of the investors we were in talks with back at the time and then ended up closing our financing round at the end of Q2 and managed to give them enough proof points that even in this time of pandemic, it's remarkable because on, on top of that, and you alluded to it but didn't say exactly, is that there was probably a change in the way that you were engaging with them. So pre-pandemic, you were probably face-to-face -face with a lot of investors. Of course, investors are all over the world, so you would have video calls and so on. But there's, especially when it gets to like serious points that you would have like more of a relationship driven approach and whilst everyone was using some of these technologies there wasn't the sea change like there is today to like everyone's on zoom and you know you can close deals over zoom no problem i'm sure that part must have been difficult just you couldn't interact with them in fundamentally the same way as you would have one month prior that's very true i, I think one of the most fundamental parts of, of a fundraising process is normally pitching in front of the whole team at an investor and getting to know their whole team and also them coming to our office getting to know the broader team not only the, the team that is fundraising so that actually was a big challenge how we approached that was just even increasing the frequency of interaction with, with these investors that, that we wanted to keep updated on, on our progress. So what we did was actually implementing weekly catch-ups with them, just taking one hour each week, even if there wasn't a major update, just to keep 
keep the interaction up and staying in constant touch and then trying to build this confidence that you can much better build when you meet a person in, in person through just having much more touch points. And you were doing that across several investors? Yeah. You don't need to give the numbers, but you know, just like multiple, multiple investors. Yeah, I would never uh, suggest to just bet all your, put your whole bet on one horse. Like that's never a good idea. So of course we, we did that with several investors. At some point you will know who is the favorite and then you will engage even more, more with them. It took time. It took a lot of time, but it was worth it. And in the end, it was the right decision and turned out. Well, the reason I was asking that is because then you, so you're in, in the midst of the pandemic. There's obviously lots of other stuff in the world going on that, you know, that was frightening for many. But so then you're, you're trying to like for the progression and survival evolution of the company, secure the funding round, it gets pushed out. Then you realize you have to engage with them regularly because that's the way to bridge this gap that you couldn't speak to them in person anymore. But at the same time, you need to run the business because if you don't grow it and have, as you said, like a really resilient, strong Q2, you'll never close the deal regardless of how good the relationship is. Yeah. Quite a delicate balance. It was an intense time, definitely. But what, what is really helping here, of course, is, is the whole team at Cornelope. It is about having a strong, broader leadership team and also a strong base of employees who are doing their job day to day and stay committed. Of course, there were challenges having to move everybody to home office but I must say the team really did a really great job here. We managed to keep our culture, keep everybody engaged and bought in into the vision. And that really freed up our time to focus on, on fundraising. And that touches on themes that have come up with many leaders and recent guests is the importance of that culture and having this broader ownership and sense of leadership beyond a small group of people at the, at the heart of a company. And that seems to be what you built and what you leveraged during you know last year, but I'm sure all the way since as well. So can you talk a little bit about how you tried to build that within Quantilope, that that strong base of employees, the broader leadership team that goes beyond the founders, and in particular, how f the finance team fit into that or, or drove different aspects of it? It always has been at the core of Cornelob and really always driven by the founders that they understood that it's it's important to build up your your second and, and third level of leadership here. I think there's there's no one better than a founder in the very early stages of the startup because he knows the product in and out. He knows the vision. They are representing the whole culture. But at some point, your tasks get so diverse, you need more and more specific knowledge in terms of what you are doing. And there are always experts and, and other people who can bring in their experience, but also grow into that role and really be much better than you were at doing that. And that's something we understood really early on. And the second thing is really communication. So it's, it's very important to be very transparent with everything we're doing here. Also engaging the broader leadership team so our leadership team at Kornilov now, the broader one, has, I think, 35 members. And it's really about also keeping them in the loop and letting them work on the strategy and the vision so that they are able to also convey that strategy and vision to, to the whole company. And, and that's how we're, how we're living the culture and, and our code. That's how we call it here at Kornilov. It's, it's amazing to think about the the way that you approach it and the, the importance that you place on on communication. And I think that that, looking back as well, that's something that at Soldo, our founder, in a completely 
agree with what you're saying about the founder epitomizes the culture and then the culture evolves beyond that if you know as you grow and the importance of the communication because when we were talking about this fundraising in q2 last year this was almost unparalleled like no nobody in multiple generations maybe nobody alive had been through a pandemic and certainly not one in a global world like we live in today so it was it was so new and almost impossible to claim certainty because nobody knew the outcome and there was complete uncertainty. But what we saw certainly with our founder at, at Soldo is that he was able to just be open about the uncertainty and say, okay, this is uncertain, but here are the things we can control, like spheres of influence and so on, and focus on working through it together. And he's a sailor, so he used lots of sailing analogies and, and choppy waters, which I'm sure would probably, like you're based in Hamburg, so there's probably, that they would go down well in Hamburg. But I, that, I think that, that you, they really strike accord that the importance of open transparent communication especially during challenging times that's something that i must say that our founders also do exceptionally well is just staying and being human i always think that being uncertain about certain things is not a problem as long as you're just honest about it and and tell everybody how you're feeling in this situation now that touches on a really important point that's, that's very relevant for anyone involved in financial planning or budgeting or or that type of aspect of, of running a company is that the delicate balance between like you share and you're transparent about certain decisions, certain initiatives or or even budgets and plans and so on. And if you share, you get alignment and you get agreement and people feel involved, engaged. But then if you share too much, there can either be sensitive stuff, of course, but there can be, it can lead to more questions than answers in a way. So I've always found that a very tricky thing to get right, you know, between how much do you share openly and at what stage versus how much do you, you know, keep enclosed and keep to a small group of people. How do you approach that at Quantelope? That's a, a balance that is really hard to find. And, and like we are constantly working on that as well. I think there is not this one single right approach, but what we want to be very open about is the state of the business. Everybody needs to understand the state of the business. Everybody needs to understand where are we in terms of the goals we set, where we stand in fulfilling our vision, and also being transparent about our fundraising efforts. It's just normal to tell for us here to tell people when we actively, when we were considering new fundraising, because that's really part of what you're supposed to do as a startup. There are things that, as you said, just don't help understanding the state of the business, but rather spread fear or maybe many more questions would arise if you go into that and that detail. So it's really a delicate balance. I don't think we, we have the silver bullet there yet. I'm even not sure if there is one. I've been burned on both sides of the spectrum, sharing too much, sharing too little. So it's, it's a difficult one to get right. I can empathize with that. Beforehand, you you spoke about and, and it's going back to the like one of your tips or suggestions about how to communicate the business, especially, again, to investors. And again, when you're looking at SaaS businesses or you're looking at any startup business, there's, there's this abundance of data increasingly. There's almost a measurable number of metrics uh, that you can look at. And you actually, and this is something that came up as well that I was, I was fascinated about, is that you built your very own B2B SaaS financial model, which is out there in the wild, and almost like open source uh, SaaS finance, which is cool. And so I was wondering then, given, like, given that complexity, is like, how do you approach the challenge of curation and choosing where to simplify? Because it's always easier to overcomplicates things than it is to simplify. So how do you approach that challenge, especially in such a data-driven analytical role? 
That's a very, very good question. And how I think about that is try to put yourself into a position of someone, first of all, who, who doesn't know all the details of your business. So what are they capable of understanding when you tell them that? And probably it's not the like most detailed and most nitty gritty analysis that you've done on a specific thing. But on the other hand, also um, look at it from an operational standpoint. What are the metrics that you are looking at? What are you using to steer your business? And when you know that and, and you have a strategy and a vision that you're working towards and you know which KPIs are needed on the way to get there, so for example, for us, it's we have a very strong focus on land and expand with our customers. For us, net retention, of course, is one of the main KPIs we're looking at. And then also digging deeper, how long does it take time to upsell? What is the split between initial deal and, and later deals? But really net retention is what, what it comes down to. So really net retention is also one of the KPIs we're centering our whole pitch around. And then we say we reach this great net retention and that's how we do it. And that's how we will grow in the future. And that's what carrying the business. I would say it shouldn't be more really than five to 10 main KPIs, because otherwise I would question whether you're focused enough also in your, in your own operations, if, whether you really know what the KPIs are that are most important to look at. Because if you choose too many, you, you just can't optimize against that many. So you end up in some type of stasis. Yes. And the second thing I find very important for KPIs is that they should have a meaning and should be easy to understand. There shouldn't be discussions around, yeah, this has went up or down, but then you're not clear on whether is this good or not. And then it's very hard to take decisions based on these KPIs. So really want to, we are trying to drill it down to 10 KPIs max we're looking at. And I guess the hardest part in that is saying no to some KPI that someone thinks is somewhat useful somewhere along the lines. Definitely. And that will also, of course, as you as your business evolves and as your maybe priorities or strategic priorities change throughout the years, of course, the KPIs need to change with that. So that's a constant process. And did you find as well, because obviously there, there are an abundance of KPIs, sometimes you use certain ones and then you'll maybe speak to investors because that's a natural or a peer or a partner or a new, maybe a new hire or an investor and they say, what about this way of looking at the business? Do you use that as like maybe a source for alternative ways of optimizing, running and growing the business? We typically try to steer also the conversations with outside investors and, and people in the way that we would have them internally. So if they are asking for KPIs that are just not that important to us, we normally tell them, okay, this is not a KPI we're looking at because this is not paying into our strategy right now and not our vision. And normally that's even helping them understand better, like what is your business actually about? Because of course, investors, they are benchmarking a big number of companies and, and from all the different industries with different sales models, different, different organizational structures. And of course, they have a set of, I would say, main KPIs they want to look at, like churn rate or net retention. And of course, you should have these ready. But also be honest about if, if this is just not a KPI that is most important to you right now. And then again, tell them how you think about your business. This touches on another point that one of our recent guests 
brought up. It was quite uh, evangelical. I, I enjoyed the language of it, but he spoke about the CFO and finance being the stewards of truth. And he said he, he didn't want to get too philosophical about it, but his, his point was that if you have clarity in what's happened or what is happening, then so much more of the conversation can be focused on what do we do about it and then trying to think about the future. And you're alluding to the same point is that at the executive team at Quantilope, you know that you have a set number of KPIs, you know it moves in a certain direction, whether it's good or bad. And so therefore, the conversation is already pretty well progressed to what should we do about it? Is that the way you see it as well? I really like the analogy. So uh, I really like the term of, of steward of the truth. We'll definitely evangelize that term here at Cronilove as well. <laughs> you need to get it on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly, uh, in my opinion, the job of a finance team is to prioritize what we are looking at and make it understandable to everyone. Because what I also think, a strong believer in diverse teams and so our leadership board here is also, there are people from product, from, from tech, but also from sales. And, and of course, the founders are in there. And then it's also important to make those KPIs like easily understandable for the people who are maybe caring about tech most of the time. So it doesn't make sense to pull up a KPI that they just won't understand. So that's really creating a, a common language for everybody that everybody understands. And that is really the job of, of finance here. And not only on leadership level, but also throughout the company. Our guest from last week, Verpe, who is the CFO at Awin, I believe actually she's in Berlin, so another part of Germany to you. But she was saying something similar just about the importance of just having really common shared sources of truth. It sounds like, again, like perhaps a technical thing or a subtle thing. But again, if you just have the commonality and finance define that to say, okay, this is what we measure. This is how we measure it. Therefore, everyone has complete agreement and alignment on what's happening, especially in larger organizations, which was her reference point. You don't have the discrepancies and the debates around what's actually happened, which of course can be just hugely wasteful to time. I presume as well in a, in a scale up at, at Quantilope stage, that's the last thing you want is that uncertainty. Definitely. I, I can only second that. And, and, what we're doing there is really, again, being transparent also about our main KPIs, also giving the people the chance to understand them their own. There are different types of people in an organization. Some will just believe the numbers that finance tells them because it's finance and you can trust them. But there are also people that just need some questions answered until they understand where these numbers are coming from, how they are calculated. And we're just open sourcing that now. We haven't done that from the start, so this was really also learning of, of myself uh, here. But what we really try to open source every KPI that we have, also what runs in there, also in a, in a very detailed manner, so that everybody can understand what we are looking at, why we are looking at this in that way, and where we stand at any time. That touches on another thing that we that had come up when we were actually looking into your background and some of the interest and the things you've, you've given positions on. And one of the, the articles that recently came up was that most startups are bad at finance. This was like someone, you know, putting out um, a polemic on that. And that was something that you shared and, and agreed with. And can you see whether that's, is that something that, that you saw you came across when, again, when you were an investor or was it something maybe you um, became aware of as you then started to try and run and build finance at a startup and scale up? <laughs> that was also a learning journey for me, is to understand what the really role of finance is in a startup. And it's really much more than just 
accounting and bookkeeping. And and I think what what many finance departments, of course, compliance and taxes and all these things are substantial parts of the business. And also we're, we're actually always, when we talk about our achievements in our company coffee, so our all-hands meetings, we typically emphasize these topics because this is what nobody normally thinks about. And we really want, we tell them like, okay, this is also one of the big achievements here. However, at the core, I think, especially in the earlier phases of a startup, is really building that, that truth and really making numbers speak. Because normally, or at least in tech startups, it's kind of rare, in my impression, that, that founder teams have some finance background or, or already a CFO from the start. So many founders are very good at building their products and, and leading teams and building a culture, but like making the numbers speak themselves is just not in the DNA of everybody. So what we also at Snowvo always, when we invested in an early stage startup, we always recommended them to hire the position of a venture associate or chief of staff or what you want to call it, who can actually help build up this number-driven and, and metrics-driven company from the start and take some load off the shoulders of founders. And that was actually one of the, the roles that, that you came into Quantilope to do was, was combination of chief of staff and, and with, a, with a finance focus, right? Yeah, they already did hire a venture associate after the seed round, so really early on, until that person moved to the yes then to build up our US operations. So there was this position again vacant uh, for the headquarters in ha Hamburg. And that's how I actually uh, started out here. I joined at Soldo actually as our chief of staff to our, our founder. So I get the, the same questions, which was when you told someone what, you know, your role, which if you told them the title, that was weird. But if you told them it, they would say, so what does that actually do? What, what do they do? Because it, ca it can be such a varied role. And as you said, it sounds as if the, the way that you approached it and the way that, you know, your, your previous fund approached it was like trying to be the, the person who can inject, I guess, the, the truth to the numbers and that metric driven culture. That's definitely one, one interpretation of the role. I think every startup will have a slightly different chief of staff interpretation. And basically how I think about that is really being the, a support where founders maybe don't have their main strengths or not the time to put their, their focus on it. Here at Quanilop, it, it has always been the chief of staff and, and now, of course, me uh, uh, leading the finance team, but putting the numbers to work helping uh, with investor in relations and also just being the um, kind of analytics guy throughout the company. So huge part of my job at the beginning was also doing sales operations and implementing KPIs and systems there. That was the chief of staff role here. And there can be very different chief of staff roles at other startups. What you touched on there was the fact that, of course, as you're growing and you, you have grown pretty rapidly, of course, going through funding rounds as well, and that you you have to, well, one is like develop the culture and then you need to develop like a really strong leadership bench that goes beyond the core leadership team. And then you also spoke about like building for the finance function. So can you talk a little bit about how you've gone about or how you, how you are going about scaling up the finance function so that it can obviously go beyond your immediate influence and the founder's influence and actually have a bigger, a bigger influence within the company? That's something that is really key to uh, having a highly functional and, and well-performing finance team is having the right team on board. And how, how we were thinking about it is, is I would say, a three-way approach. So number one is 
we are operating internationally. So we have our headquarters in Hamburg, but we also have a subsidy in, in Lithuania and we have a subsidy in the US. So of course, we're working with local specialists and that's really external parties who help us with all the details and local legislation and local um, tax law. So I think finding a good and reliable partner there is really helpful, especially if you start out in a location. The second thing is, Actually, we made very good experience with adding people to the finance team who already worked in another role at our company. Probably that's a speciality uh, for us, but it's it's been two people already that previously worked in, uh, in another role at our company and then said, I want to join the finance team as well. And what is really the great thing about that is they they have this inherent combination of the numbers they see with what is going on in the business. They They understand what is actually the actions behind the numbers so they can make much more sense out of it. And then as with the other leaders and other team here, it's very important to bring in people, and I strongly believe in that, that are better at me at doing the things that they then take over. We really want an expert in that field who is better than anybody else that is already on the team. That's also something that, that is really valuable if people bring in their previous experience or just their knowledge of certain specialty topics. Presumably as part of that, as you bring in those specialists that take on the parts of the function and the role as it scales, inherently your role evolves with that because you need to rise up to a different level. You may be, you may be able to take on higher order things that you weren't before. And this touches on a previous point you've made about finance is not necessarily in a startup just about accounting, just about tax and so on. It's about much more than that and, and bringing truth to those numbers. One of the themes that's come up time and time again is the evolving role of the CFO over a long period of time. So there maybe was a time where it was very numbers orientated, very compliance orientated, whereas now it's it's moving potentially for many people into something that's more advisory, more of a business partner, more of a, a like a leader who influences across the company. Is that something that you, that you see in your your own experience, or you, or you see with uh, with others around you? A hundred percent. That's exactly the um, the change that I was also going through in my role here. So starting out as a chief of staff to, to the management, of course, doing a lot of the things myself, of course, building up a lot of things myself here and, and being really deep into numbers, being the expert on many fields. This has completely changed since then with the team. Of course, of course, there are things that you still are looking into. I'm, I'm still... I still enjoy like playing around with the numbers myself. Of course, I want to understand still what the KPIs are, but the role now has much more evolved into, first of all, it's a huge responsibility to lead a team. So it's really putting a focus that they can perform well and, and not only in a, in a like matter expert way, but also creating an environment where they can really evolve here and really felt like conveying the culture that they feel engaged and they feel committed to the company. That's that's like one big focus of mine, especially in these times where people are working from home and really rarely see uh, each other. The second part is the really the business partner. And that's not only on a, on a leadership level. So that's really also about other leaders, other peers. And it doesn't always have to be finance related. It can just be what is your like more number driven or finance related view on this matter? Like, is there something in it that we could maybe do in a more structured way? Or do you have an idea whether like maybe this is a thing that we've have we have steered in the past with gut feel? 
do you have an idea like or do you have benchmarks or do you have someone in your network also again from the from the previous roles who could help us with that and and that's really i would say now at least 50 60% of my job here just being a sparing partner for the whole company and other teams other leaders as well and and try to just make the numbers and or or bring the mindset of trying to making things measurable and learning from the data we have at hand. And that's really something I, I also very much enjoy. As you say, it, it ties in very much so with many of the responsibilities that most chief of staffs would have as well as that is a, is a roving role. It's trying to be a partner, an advisor to identify either opportunities or gaps. So there's actually a surprising amount of similarity between the way you describe that business partnering and potentially with the responsibilities that a typical chief of staff would have as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that's really, again, coming back to the point, you already know the whole organization normally because you've you've worked across different business units. You, you have, you know what is going on in, in the business. And then you can make the most sense of, out of the numbers because you know how your business is actually, what, what is actually done there. You know which KPIs are the ones you should be looking at because you know what are the actions that you are actually taking. And then you really get the uh, most value out of, out of your finance function, I think. I would love to ask a couple more questions. And the one is a natural extension for what we're saying. And then the other is a, is a bit random, but we got onto that. The one that's an extension is that, so for anyone else that's in, because there will be, again, listening to this, like people who are your peers or people who are aspiring to be in a position like yours where they're leading the finance function at a scale up and a very successful one at that. Like what advice would you give to those who are looking to, to grow themselves in their career and eventually move into the role of like head of finance and the CFO? What is always very helpful and what has helped me in the past is really trying to make the best use of the people that are around you. Maybe your peers in the company, maybe your, your superiors in the company, or even your network. There is so much to learn from others and, and so many mistakes that you cannot make because you were given good advice in the, in the first place. And that's something that really helped me, like really being eager to learn from everybody around you and also from their failures. Like there's always a big learning in a, in a failure. And, and this is really something that helped me, I hope, avoiding many mistakes that I could have made. Then again, don't be afraid to fail. Like there will always be situations where you take a wrong decision and then just be very open about it. Talk about it, what you did, what happened. And then also what you learn from it. And I don't know of a single case here at Quantilope where somebody was open about their, their failure or fail. We're even celebrating that. We have kind of a session once a month where three people or four people are presenting their failures of the month. <laughs> We're actually trying to make a culture of, out of it because you shouldn't be concerned with failure as long as you're learning from it and you're open about it, not try to hide it. That's really good. Failures of the month. This actually touches, again, upon another insight that one of our guests had, and she coined it as exactly the same as you, recognize where you failed, admit it, own it, and move on. And that was like one of the, the core pieces of advice that she had for everyone else. So then the last question, I had to touch on it. So within your profile, you're, you're hooked on all things tech, which we've discussed quite a lot about and makes complete sense. But then you also mentioned chess as well. Where does the passion from chess come from and how does that complement in your, your day-to-day role in, at Quantilope? That's actually going back back to my youth. Like I, I started playing chess when I was, I think, nine years old and then also 
joined the club and I would say I was medium successful in my chess <laughs> careers. I happened to be on the on a state team in my youth for two years. And that really has continued as a passion. Like I never tried to be a professional there. I never had the aspiration to to play on a global level. But still, I actually think that there are things uh, that you can learn from chess. And one thing is definitely, I mean, chess is a very logical game. And, and chess is really about there is no such thing as luck in chess. It's just just about, in the end, who played better. However, there's a big psychological component, although it's it's very logical. And that's really about how do you feel the day you play your your chess game? You can play much worse if you're just having a bad day or if you're kind of uncomfortable with something that your opponent is doing. What I took from this is really also in, in the workspace. It's not only about what you do, like in terms of the, the matter that you're doing, that you're an expert there. It's really about you need to have a good environment in which you can really thrive and in which you can really get the best out of yourself. At least some people overlook that. You can have the very same person with the very same skills working in two different environments and delivering completely different performance just because of the environment and not their abilities themselves. I'm sure you're underselling your your chess career because if you if you played at a state level, that's that's quite high for me. I did a little bit of that when I was when I was younger as well, but I don't think that I'd be able to compete with the with the level that you're on. Andy, thanks for for taking the time to speak with us today. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. If uh, our listeners are looking to connect with you um, anywhere after this, where should they go? You can find me on LinkedIn under under my full name, Andreas Melser. I think my email address is still on my public LinkedIn profile. But otherwise, I always love to connect over tech, all things tech, finance, and of course, all things chess. Please feel free um, to, to connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email. That's great. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you, Ross. It was great being here. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with someone that you think would enjoy it. CFO Playbook is brought to you by Solvo, the number one corporate card and spend management platform. Learn more at soldo.com.